The Start On Demand. On demand. What is your biggest fear? A Toronto man experienced his when the elevator he was in, the cable snapped and it fell and he got hurt. He's okay now, but that's scary. What is your biggest fear? Matthew Perot of the Winnipeg Jets is furious with the NHL. The Winnipeg Dress Collective is getting ready for its second fitting of free dresses and suits for deserving brides and now grooms, courtesy of F Apparel. And the HSC Foundation Hope to Life Radiothon is next week, so we'll preview that with a brother and sister, one of whom saved the other's life with a bone marrow transplant. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Friday, January 17th podcast for The Start. Yesterday, we froze an egg. We didn't fry an egg. We froze an egg on the sidewalk because it was so cold. You could see that video on 680CJOB's Facebook page. What would you say? Two minutes to freeze it about? Yeah, about that. Like we weren't super patient. I think if we waited another five minutes, it would have frozen completely. It was cold out there. I know. And I wasn't going to get to eat it at the end. Yeah. Fair. Yeah. And I didn't want to stand out there and freeze. And it's kind of boring just watching this egg sort of freeze. <laughs> so you can see that video on our 680 CGOB Facebook page. But we go from the extreme cold and now into a snowfall warning. I, I, I can't repeat what I said when I got that notification <laughs> at 441 a.m. No, and what was funny is I came in and I said, are we under a snowfall warning? And you were like, uh. And then two minutes later, you're like, snowfall warning. Like it was like it just clicked in. You had read it somewhere. I don't know if, you know, we're getting that zone where we're kind of like not your morning. We're trying to listen to each other. And all of a sudden you exploded with rage. <laughs> well, because because the notification of rage, I just got the notification that it, like and in that moment, my phone buzzed. And yes. I looked down like, ah, yeah, damn it. I think it felt worse because it attacked you from your phone. Yeah. But didn't we talk to Kayla about 20 hours ago yeah. about the idea that we might get up to 15 centimeters of snow? Yeah, but 20 hours is a lot of time to go and be like, you know, that might not happen. Well, and how often do you go home? Somebody will ask you, uh, what's the weather going to be like uh, tomorrow? I don't know. I only read it six times today, but <laughs> it did not stick into my brain. So uh, you're forgiven. And uh, I have sort of the same approach, but I'd take, I'll see, the well, wind, the the wind is coming too. to forgive because yesterday it was 10, maybe 15. And then now we get an official warning, 10 to 20 centimeters of snow so that's why i was outraged like oh man it's got worse plus Hmm. the wind so the wind is always what you know if you're heading anywhere and of course hey it always comes on the weekend so if you're heading out of town this afternoon tonight that's something to be really aware of and i was listening to mike conkin on my drive home yesterday global's weather specialist and uh he was talking about saturday being particularly blustery as well especially south of the border like that line actually makes a difference so if you're going to grand forks this weekend or any of those kinds of trips it's not going to be pleasant. How's that? So hunker down. There's a show on Netflix that returns season two of Sex Education is out this week. Oh. So I, maybe I'll watch that. Loren, you said you started watching Messiah. Yeah, well, my husband started watching it. I don't know when. And I sat down with him last night to try to catch up. It's very interesting. The title says it all. It's someone who comes who may or may not be 
Jesus or the son of God. And yeah, I, I, the whole way through, it either has you thinking that this is a trick or he might be a magician or it could be real or, oh my gosh, maybe it is real. What would you do if this actually happened? You know, like all those things. Does husband get uh, worked up? Like, did he think this was going to be his thing? And then now you've sat down and now you've assumed no. your way into what was going to kind be of. his Maybe. show. Well, what happened is we were also we had also started a show a couple of days ago, seven seconds. And um, but then we were on different shifts. So I went to bed. He comes home last night. The kids have hockey. So he's like, you want to watch a show? And then he's on episode seven of seven seconds. and I'm on episode two. So I was like, well, we can't watch this together. Now I'm annoyed. So then he pulled out that one and he's already on episode eight. So now I'm catching up to that story. So we generally are on different paths TV wise. Does it feel like is it like TV cheating is when when the partner just it, goes ahead and watches without you. If we were in the same sleeping zone, you know, yeah. in terms of that, I would maybe. But now it's like, I, what am I expecting to do? Like from eight p.m. till eleven p.m., sit there in silence, like, <laughs> or only like have, like come to me with select shows. Like yeah. that doesn't. No, that find your own show. That wouldn't be fair. Yeah, he usually does. He I usually like, like finding my he own. He likes shows. to watch like the tanks of. 1940 and documentaries and stuff. So usually it's not an issue. He likes he likes a lot of like learning shows and I want to have zero learning after work. Coming up at 645, we're going to ask you the question, what is your biggest fear? And this has to do with a situation in Toronto where a man was injured after an elevator cable snapped in a downtown high rise. That's one of those things that you think about sometimes when you step, well, for me anyway, I know people have serious fears of elevators, but I get in and every once in a while you think, what what am I supposed to do if that happens? Because it does. And then you hear that, wait till you hear this guy's story. Yeah, it's crazy. It made me think of, remember the movie Speed? Yes. Yes. That first scene? Yes. Where the, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and they can't yes. get out and they're trying to pull them out and it keeps going lower and lower. And then they, they just as they rescue the one woman, the whole thing crashes to the ground. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Wow. Come on. <laughs> Too late for what that. What is that movie? Sorry if you haven't seen 1993's Speed. <laughs> Pop quiz, hot shot. <laughs> but, uh, and like, I, I, it's something that I've been thinking about because one of the elevators in my building has been down for like a month. They finally got it fixed. Oh, they did. They, they, Didn't they have to craft the part? Yeah, it was, they had to rebuild. The part got shipped to Toronto and had to be rebuilt. Oof. Uh, but the other elevator in the meantime, we have Three elevators. There's a service elevator in the middle that we we can use if it's not in service. And then one of them was down, and the other one was starting to act up, and it was like making these rickety noises. And I, it's scary when the elevator sure. starts making noises that it's you're not used to it making, mm-hmm. and the door isn't working properly. I'm just thinking, like, what happens if this thing goes down? Do I jump up on the rail? Like, what am I supposed to do? I don't know what you're supposed to do. You take video. You work for a uh, organization. Get your phone out. (laughs) (laughs) If you survive, I'll be like, Brett, why weren't you live tweeting that? Hey, well, put it on Facebook Live and Instagram Live. If I'm going down, at least we'll get a couple more viewers. That's right. Oh, terrible thought. (laughs) But it's a very real situation because you do think it's the same with noises and anything that you take every day. You take it for granted. And then every once in a while you pause and think, huh, what, what would I do if... mentioned Greg not being impressed. Well, someone on the Winnipeg Jets not too impressed today. If you saw the game Tuesday night, or even if you didn't, uh, let me tell you this. Uh, Matthew Perot got an elbow in the face from Jake Vertanen of the Vancouver Canucks. There was no penalty on the play. So at the very least, fans, players expecting that the NHL might take a look at the videotape and 
perhaps a one-game suspension for Vertanen. Perot learning yesterday that the NHL not going to take any action. Here's Perot. You know, player safety, my like this is literally a elbow to the face to a guy that didn't have the puck. I see him coming, I brace for a hit. It was a late hit, I never had the puck, and he flicks his elbow to my face, and they're, and they're not going to do anything about it, so... Now I gotta take matters in my own hand. Next time this happens, and I get I get to swing my stick across his, his forehead, and I shouldn't I shouldn't get suspended. Then I don't really know what to say. Um, like I can't really protect myself there. If the league's not gonna protect me, then I'm the smallest guy on the ice, so I can't really fight anybody. So the, the only thing I can do to defend myself is is use my stick. So the next guy that does that to me, he's gonna get my stick, and I better not get suspended for it. He talks about how he's the smallest guy on the ice. Who's gonna protect him? He can't protect himself. I do not suggest he swing his stick at anyone in anger, but I think he's just trying to make a point. He's mad in that moment, too. No one's listening to him. And I, one other thing I wanted to raise, first of all, do you think that that should have been a suspension? I think it should have been at least a, a penalty, but because they missed it, yes, I think you got to miss at least a, a game for that. If you're talking about protection of the players and the head in particular, this is a clear blow to the head. The guy goes out of the way. Perot does not have the puck. Uh, it's not similar because of the way it happened to what happened just about five weeks ago to Perot. He got blindsided by a hit from a Philadelphia player who ended up getting a suspension for hitting him. So Perot's coming off a concussion and then he gets elbowed like this. And this is just one of about three or four things in the last week, week and a half where fans and observers, commentators are saying, is the NHL really looking out for players when it comes to quote unquote player safety and this part of the league? And I think you could argue that the, that uh, the NHL maybe needs to look themselves in the mirror about how seriously they're taking these things. And they have more cameras on them than anyone else, more then, opportunities for before. review. They've got all sorts of people watching from a box and from, from Toronto and in the NHL head office so now more than ever they should be getting better at it I I like his honesty I don't again like you said I don't want to see him swinging a stick at anyone for a slash or worse or hurting but I appreciate that he's angry in this moment Mackling McGarry and McNabb what is your biggest fear well a student says he is traumatized after being stuck in a downtown Toronto high-rise building elevator when a cable snapped, causing it to drop. Here's more from Global News Toronto. I'm glad I'm alive. A rattled Sean Lally is happy to have his two feet back on solid ground after the most terrifying elevator ride of his life. I was scared about, like, literally splattering on the ground, right? Because it's like... It's a it's a it's a high-rise building, right? The 21-year-old says he was visiting a friend on the 34th floor of 88 Bloor Street East Wednesday when he got into the elevator headed down. Within moments, he said the express lift began to clunk around. I hear a couple bangs, thuds when it immediately crashes and I'm in the air and then my knees hit the ground. Breaking in between the 13th and 14th floors, Lally was able to get up and call for help. Uh, they're very close to coming down there right now. For two hours, fire crews worked to get him out, rappelling more than 20 meters to perform a high angle rescue. And they lower a rescuer down the shaft with a harness, a spare harness, go through the roof of the elevator, into through the hatch, harness the patient up or the, the civilian up, and then pull them both up together. Emergency workers initially reported the elevator had been in free fall, but the Technical Standards and Safety Authority, or TSSA, says its preliminary investigation reveals otherwise. 
confirming one of five cables snapped. Certainly could have resulted in noise and then the emergency braking system was deployed and so you know you can imagine an elevator is going down and it, and it suddenly stops. Calling the incident jarring, Alexandra Campbell says the TSSA will also be looking into the braking system. Did it stop in the manner that it should have? They've been out of service sometimes as long as a week. Doug, who has lived on the 33rd floor since 1985, says there have been elevator issues here for years. He hopes the incident will force management to install new cars. Maple Leaf Property Management did not return our request for comment. For Sean, the experience isn't stopping him from getting back on the proverbial horse. It was scary. I actually held the railing um, every time I got in an elevator today. Hoping his next rides are much less eventful. As you can imagine, this was one of Sean's worst nightmares. He said he has suffered minor injuries. The TSSA, meanwhile, says their investigation could take months. Wow. Oh. How do you get in an elevator? The, he said the next day he got in and held the handrail. I guess you have no choice in so many places yeah, yeah. of work, or especially in Toronto, there's all sorts of condos and friends that you'd have. But, oh, I don't know if I'd go back in for a while. Yeah, that's some scary stuff, uh, especially, like I said earlier, my elevator and my building has been kind of weird lately, making weird rickety noises. So <laughs> it's something that I think about more than I'd like to. I've never been in an elevator that has had a problem for any more than about 20 or 30 seconds. I've thought about it for sure, but you start checking to see who makes these elevators like are they making elevators in china now because i have a feeling like the germans would make the best elevators for some reason just they're so good at at fine manufacturing i think i would start checking the name on the elevators before i go into them so we're having a conversation what's your biggest fear jeff braun mm. producer kyler here jeff what's your biggest fear uh being lost at sea which is pretty good for a winnipeg boy because it's hard to do. You can take care of that pretty easy, <laughs> huh? Then how does that happen? Does that every time I see the ocean, it's just it's just so yeah. big, and I can imagine how <laughs> deep it is. And I was like, and I've been on cruises before, and you just look out, and it's just it's the same. Like there's there's nothing discerning about any part of the water, right? It's like wow, if you went overboard, even if they got this ship turned around, they'd never find you That's because it all looks the same and everything looks small in it. Like you wouldn't be able to see it. I couldn't do a cruise. That is yeah. one of the reasons why. It just why, where does it end? Why is there no other side? Where's the other side? A lot of times, it's nice if you if you can look out one side of the boat and you can usually sort of see the shore. They try to they sort of stay close to shore when they're shore to stay close to. So then it's at least like, well, if I fell out, I could swim over there. I think I could make it if my could life you? depended on it. The waves are helping. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, why are you falling off a ship? What I don't are you know. doing on People the ship? Fall off ships. It's just some Cluzo-esque misadventure in which I slip Cluzo. on a banana peel and just go over the edge. I don't know. There are banana peels everywhere on the ship. <laughs> you also hear these stories about, you know, some stupid family, always from New Jersey, it seems, that starts a brawl on a cruise ship or whatever, and they all get arrested, and you get stuck in the middle of that and get tossed off the ship pretty easy. Well, that's true. I... Now I don't want to ever go on a cruise. Thanks, Jeff. I, I suspect as well, Greg, your biggest fear probably involves water, and in particular, uh, one sort of water-based animal. No question about it. It's not even close. It's uh, one and two and three and four are my <laughs> biggest fears, are sharks, and so I just stay out of the ocean now. But now my kids love to go in the ocean. I'm trying not to transfer that fear to them when we were in California in August. I let them go out Santa Monica. Monica Pier, they love playing in the ocean, and I 
said to them, the only rule is you cannot be the furthest person out. <laughs> I just want you to be inside some other people. So, shark you might gets, be, so the shark gets in first. Not, yeah. I don't have to exactly. outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you, Kennedy. Correct. <laughs> Producer Kyle. Um, mine's similar to Jeff. I think just sort of isolation. Uh, I remember me and my wife rented the uh, cabin a couple years ago, and it was off the beaten path. And one night we're going to bed, and I was just like, what if – there's somebody out standing outside the window there. It's just a horror movie thing. Yeah, and yeah, she's yeah. just like, oh, thanks. I'm like, yeah, I know, it's a stupid brain. Now, now I just close all the blinds and make sure everything, nothing's there. It's just one of those things where you're just like, where you are just helpless in that way because you go, oh, if someone's out there, like, I have no recourse to fix this, basically. What, what was that movie? Was it The Strangers? The Strangers, yeah. It's just where you go, oh, well, if this happens, I'm just going to have to see what <laughs> I can't, like, call anyone or fix this. It's just, you know. And then, of course, it's not going to happen, obviously, but you can't tell your brain that. Have you ever had a, uh, you've obviously never had a peeping Tom. I had one. Oh, you did? I had a guy that used to spy on my girlfriend a long time ago when we lived together, and I caught him on the balcony one night. Oh, my In the gosh. middle of the night, and I'm getting worked up <laughs> thinking about it. It's 25 yes. years ago, and all I could do was yell, hey, get the, you know, out of here, because I was getting dressed for work. I couldn't, if I'd been dressed, things would have turned out completely like you, differently. Like you were on the balcony? or He was on the balcony <clears throat> looking into our apartment. And apparently he'd been doing it for some time. What and I worked in the middle yeah. of the second floor in, you know, right close to you. So S- similar condos like oh, yours. Yeah, yeah, oh, great. Yeah, I'm on the second floor. Oh, so my God. I, my <laughs> hands are sweating thinking about it because I saw him and I yelled at him. And I, I knew the guy. I knew who he was, fortunately. Oh, my God. And, uh, yeah, that, there's nothing worse than someone invading your privacy like I, that. I think that would go up there, and one of my fears is that that home invasion because it's it's a possibility, like it's kind of a real situation you can imagine. And so when you go to bed at night, particularly if my husband's out working, he does call shifts where you might be out overnight, and if I hear a noise, my immediate thought is here it's happening like let's go and I, I number of times I've gone to the pantry and grabbed the broom what am I going to do with it I don't know but I will beat you down if you're coming into my house I keep a didgeridoo by my bed do you really <laughs> yep and I don't know how to play it <laughs> 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 Dean texting at 204-780-6868 saying my biggest fear is rushing into a public restroom for an emergency and finding out there's no toilet paper Oof. in the dispenser. Uh, thank you for that, Dean. That's Hey, that's a, a genuine, yep. like, what do you do if, if that were to happen? And The then, advent of cell phones, I think, have solved that problem a little true. bit for a lot of people. I text, text your best yeah. friend. Be like, come on, help me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or you could, I guess you could Google the business that you're in and then call, call the front their front desk. desk. And uh, Tom, and I can relate to this one. Tom says, my biggest fear, missing that two-foot putt. <laughs> Loren McNabb, there's something happening today involving wrongful conviction. And I want to read out a few names for you that I think we all know all too well now. David Milgard, James Driscoll, Thomas Sofno, Frank Ostrowski, Brian Anderson. We know them for the wrong reasons because they're men who were sent to prison for murders. Each one said from the start they did not commit. We know some like Milgard and Driscoll and Sofano have been exonerated or had their convictions overturned. Others are still fighting to fully clear their name. But that's not their only connection. I think one of the most astonishing and frustrating parts of this all is that everyone on that list, all those five men, are Manitobans. And they're not the only Manitobans we know of who've since uh, had their names cleared or, again, fighting to overturn that wrongful conviction. They're taking part today, this afternoon, in a Winnipeg conference on wrongful convictions. 
And I think it's safe to say Manitoba might be ground zero for this subject. Greg Roden is a lawyer who has represented several wrongfully convicted, and he's also helped put together this conference, and he joins us now. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Lauren. Can we start with the Manitoba puzzle of people out there listening and say, why, what happened that we have so many people in this province particularly that seem to fall into this tragic category? Well, there are a lot of uh, potential uh, reasons for that. Um, there's been uh, one prosecutor who's been identified with several uh, of those uh, wrongful convictions. Uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, wrongful conviction is something that happens across the country, and uh, Manitoba's had more than its fair share in the last decades. So why are you doing this? Why bring these men together? Well, there, there are several reasons. Um, the, I think, precipitating event here was that... Uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has indicated that uh, he is uh, uh, going to be proceeding with uh, the uh, uh, undertaking he made prior to the election to uh, constitute a board to uh, examine these cases of wrongful conviction instead of the usual process of going through the Department of Justice. This is a big win for those that have been advocating for such a board for so many years. And uh, now we have to have a national discussion about what that board's going to look like, uh, who's going to be on the board, uh, what are the ground rules, what are the processes and procedures, and uh, hopefully uh, we can bring those types of uh, considerations uh, into the public domain and uh, have some appropriate uh, uh, rationale and reasons uh, established and the board established in accordance with those. Greg, we're always anxious for expeditious justice when people are on trial, but it seems to take forever for these individuals to get their, what's really what's coming to them on the other side when it's been proven that they shouldn't have been in jail in the first place. Yeah, and part of the board's job will to determine whether they should have been in jail in the first place and what uh, compensation or what uh, action should be taken to remedy the situation once that determination has been made. But it's been a terrible system. Uh, the, the list of, of names, uh, with the exception of the more recent discovery of a wrongful conviction, have been waiting for years for the Department of Justice, uh, or had been waiting for years for the Department of Justice to make its determination. And, and they're sitting in jail. They're uh, deemed to be uh, the most heinous of killers until such time as they're exonerated. And to wait decades for that is really inexcusable. Well, you think of the case of Brian Anderson, 1974 murder. He was sent to prison and then got parole in 1987 and since then has been working well from the beginning to clear his name. So you're talking a decades long fight. The process as it stands right now is that it just has to go back through the usual court system. Are we suggesting or talking about the idea then that the creation of this board would be a separate road that the wrongfully convicted could go down so they aren't put into the same system that we already know is overtaxed and overburdened and has far too many names on a list? Well, that's right. And, and it's uh, uh, generally the delays start with the application under the former 696 of the Criminal Code, which uh, is the uh, application to the minister uh, for uh, a, a review of the conviction. And uh, those have uh, historically taken uh, years and uh, up to decades uh, to complete. Uh, so uh, with that uh, change, hopefully with the board change, that will happen much, much, much quicker and uh, we have some ideas that we'll be exploring uh, at the conference today about uh, how that should look, when that board should uh, become uh, activated, and uh, it will save years or decades uh, of time from uh, making these determinations. Some of these cases we're talking about, like the one I just mentioned, are decades old, but are we getting any better at this? Do we still see the same percentage of wrongful convictions happening throughout Canada, or have we learned over the years and that list is getting smaller? Is there good news there at all? 
It, it, it's hard to tell. Um, we, we have a backlog of individuals who are asking uh, organizations like Innocent Can- Innocence Canada to look into their convictions. They're saying that uh, I was wrongfully convicted and I've been uh, sitting rotting in jail. Will you help me? Um, the list hasn't shortened for Innocence Canada, um, and uh, I don't know that anybody has any data that can speak to whether or not these wrongful convictions are occurring less frequently. Uh, the, the problems in the justice system that gave rise to those, such as police tunnel vision and uh, 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 dealing with police dealing with witnesses in such a way that they're getting information they want to hear versus the truth, uh, those those types of problems uh, I think still persist, and uh, uh, lack of disclosure by crown attorneys uh, of appropriate and important uh, uh, evidence is, is a problem that uh, we see frequently having. So uh, you know I don't know. I wish I could say that uh, things are getting better. Uh, the rules are clear. Uh, everybody understands the rules, but I think they've understood them for decades. So um, all I can say is I don't know the answer to that, but I haven't seen any evidence that it's getting any better yet. All right. The- Greg, I remember Joyce Milgard being at the U of M trying to raise awareness of, of her son David's case. How emotional, how personal does this sort of thing get for you when you get involved? Well, it's, it's tragic. Um, you know, David uh, Milgard, who I represent, uh, represented uh, for, for many years, uh, has become a very close personal friend of mine. Uh, uh, when I first met him, I knew he couldn't hurt a fly. And uh, the frustration of, of dealing with a system which just refused to recognize the even possibility that David Milgard was innocent for literally decades uh, is is frustrating, hurtful, and uh, uh, something that uh, many people are now dedicated to change. So hopefully, uh, with those efforts and the new board, things will look different in the future. Conference is at 2 o'clock today at the Human Rights Museum. Open to the public, Greg? Open to the public. No RSV required, uh, RSVP required. We're uh, uh, counting on uh, a big turnout. We're seeing a lot of interest, and I think it's going to be a really interesting conference. Please come and show your support for the justice system and the wrongly convicted. Greg Roden, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate the time, sir. Thank you for the opportunity. Greg is a lawyer who has represented several wrongfully convicted Manitobans, and he's helped to put together this conference that's happening starting at 2 o'clock this afternoon. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, this next story is a cautionary tale for anyone who plays recreation hockey. Yeah, an Ontario man has been ordered to pay $700,000 for injuring a player in a beer league just for fun game. The hit happened back in 2012, and according to the judge, the player that was hit hasn't been the same since. Global's Abigail Beeman looks at the case and how the hockey community there is reacting. I'm terrified of my kid getting hit from behind. Dave Ross refereed hockey for 40 years and has seen his fair share of violence on the ice. They just changed, actually changed the rule now in minor hockey, so a minor penalty for checking from behind is now an automatic one-game suspension. But it's not just a problem in minor hockey. I won't referee men's hockey anymore because I can't deal with all the crap that goes on. An Ontario court ruled one beer league player has to pay another $700,000 in damages for slamming into him during the last minute of a game in 2012. Temporarily knocked unconscious, the judge found Drew Casterton's brain injury left him with permanent damage, and he has never returned to the life he enjoyed before the hit. $700,000? That's a lot of money, my dear. 30-plus years old, the NHL's not calling anymore. 
you know, have fun, have a good time. After years of criticism, the NHL has slowly moved to take headshots more seriously, but contact still counts for a lot. Body checking, physical contact is something that's part of the game, has been forever. Um, and that's something that makes the game exciting, appealing, entertaining. Hockey Canada has been proactive, banning body checking for players under 13. Well, I wasn't surprised. Um, it is something we're starting to see trend up. And the Canadian Adult Recreational Hockey Association offers members liability insurance at a cost of $23 a year. What I think we're going to see is uh, maybe municipalities are going to start to mandate liability. Another sign the game so many of us love is evolving at all competitive levels as our understanding of head injuries does too. Abigail Beeman, Global News, Ottawa. Well, I think this is about respect and a lack thereof for the game and for one another on the ice. It just takes one player. I don't care what level of hockey you're at. It just takes one player to run around with a complete disregard for what the rules are and playing within the rules. You have these beer leagues and these other rec leagues. They're supposed to be non-contact. And I know that there are guys who have, of my age and, and younger, who stopped playing those leagues because they can't afford to miss time at work for a broken ankle or broken wrist because... Because one or two guys think they're they're still auditioning for the NHL or they're working out their aggression some way. And you don't want to give up the game entirely, so you put up with this stuff. And it's just like the National Hockey League continues to put up, like what happened to Matthew Perot the other night, the garbage that happened last weekend with Matthew Kachuk and Zach Cassian. Kachuk running around like a like a Tasmanian devil playing marginally outside the rules of the game. Cassian, because the officials were not calling anything on Kachuk, decided that he would take matters into his own hands and, uh, well, beat the pulp, beat, beat Kachuk to a pulp. Uh, Cassian gets suspended. Kachuk does not. And so that's a big part of the conversation. In my opinion, it boils down to one word, respect. I think part of the issue might just be the idea that particularly, and maybe this will change over the generations as players are raised, as you just heard, you can't you can't have any contact under that 15-year-old age. So that's evolving. So you might grow up and become an adult beer league hockey player who plays differently than the current adults are. But the current adults grew up under a different system. And so the, the hockey allows for that contact, or it did when they were growing up. And then it also allows for, unlike any other sport, really, that response, which is to push and shove or maybe even fight. Sure, you can have a penalty or be suspended, but unlike any other sport, it's more acceptable. And so sh I think most of these leagues now don't have that contact. And if I, if from what I've watched in adult hockey, they also have referees. So there's penalties and people get kicked out of games and all those kinds of things. But it's a perfect example of, did you stop and think about your liability? If nothing else is going to stop you, right. imagine being hit with a $700,000 fine for playing a means-nothing game, even if it meant something, imagine that. But I, that should be the thing that stops you cold. Guys ever drop the gloves in beer leagues? Uh, oh, yeah. That, yeah. Yeah, it's not super common, I don't think, but it does happen. It happens, for sure. For sure it does. And I, I don't know, I, Canada, we all think we're good at hockey, and we want to play the game at the highest level possible, no matter what that level is for you. And there's a certain aspect uh, about earning and gaining respect in a different fashion. And that's 
sometimes it's it's standing up for your teammates. Sometimes it's standing up for yourself. There's a lot of machismo involved, but you're right, Loren. It's been part of the game, even though it is a penalty. It's been allowed mm. to happen, and so that that continues to manifest itself. Uh, over the years and until they take fighting out of the game altogether, you're going to see it in kids hockey. You're going to see it in rec league hockey from guys that are way past their prime. And forgive my ignorance on this because I don't play hockey, so I don't participate in beer hockey. Everybody calls them beer leagues. Like, are guys actually, like, drinking beer before they hit the ice? No. Typically, it's in the dressing room after and the afterwards. game. And afterwards. It, I, think, I think the expression goes, and, and again, everyone probably plays it differently. It's more like a nighttime, you know, you get together, you have a game, and usually it's fun. And then I think afterwards, you might crack a couple beers in your, in your hometown rink or your community rink. And I don't think they're getting on the ice inebriated, although I'm sure that might might happen in some circumstances. So it's supposed to be fun. I think the expression is more just that it's beer league. Like we don't, they used to call it when I was growing up, old timers hockey Mm -hmm. in Minnedosa and they were on the old timers league and everybody respected that, man, we're like in our forties and fifties. Nobody's taking this too seriously. And I don't think it's because there's a bunch of guys out there who think that they're still going to make the show. I just think they've grown up in a system where the aggression, it becomes a place where maybe that's more acceptable. And that's an instinct part of the problem, the clutching, the grabbing, the hooking, the slashing, because you've been playing the game for 40 years. And so that's always been allowed is a little bit of pushing after the whistle or before the whistle or a slight little cross check, even though technically it's a penalty. It's not always called and it's been acceptable to a certain point. I want to read a text from one of our listeners who talked about, and I won't say what league it came out of just in case it identifies the person, but he says back in December he had a co-worker who was cross-checked in the back of the head so hard it cracked his helmet in half, and his doctor told him any lower and it could have severed his spine. He had to go on light duties, and that was a beer league in this city. And so there, you know, it, might, it probably wasn't even an intentional hit, but you also have to remember, and I dabble in rack hockey, and I mean like twice a year, I'll go out with some girls on a Sunday night in St. Adolph. It's a ton of fun. But I don't skate as good as I did. Well, I don't think I ever skated very good. But I certainly don't (laughs) skate as good as I did when I was 17. And so you have to remember you don't stop as quickly. You might not have as good control. And so accidental injuries can happen all the time. I've I've fallen with nobody near me, you know, and think, thank goodness I have my helmet on because I'd have to come to work and be like, I have a concussion that I gave myself. (laughs) Neil texting saying, yeah, in our beer league, you drop the gloves, you're done forever. Find nice. a new league. So that's good to hear. I mean, I guess uh, perhaps it varies from league to league, uh, but I would be curious to know if the rules are different from league to league on contact and what have you. What's got your attention there, Greg? It would be interesting to know if this sort of thing happens in the European beer leagues because the Europeans are sort of famous for not fighting. European hockey, fighting isn't really a part of the game. So it's a little bit of a shot, but a, a very funny one. Keep your feedback coming at 204-780-6868. Also go to the 680 CJOB Facebook page and tell us what is your biggest fear for your chance to win tickets to see Howie Mandel. Just very quickly here, somebody texted us a rather unique fear, and I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to pronounce it, but this person says... I have a strange one, a fear of buttons or cum punophobia. Can't stand looking at them or worse, touching them. Steve Jobs had the same phobia. Thank you, Jacob, for sharing that with us. Is that where he always, he must, that's why he always wore a tur- turtleneck, I, I guess. I guess so, yeah. The headline that we discussed in our previous segment, Ontario Court Awards 
$700,000 to rec league hockey player who got head injury from body check. And we're getting all kinds of feedback at 204-780-6868 because we were talking about rec hockey leagues, beer leagues, old timers leagues, as Loren says, uh, they called it in Minnedosa. And Greg, uh, you, there were a couple of texts that grabbed your attention. Well, we were asking the question about where this beer is consumed. And to my knowledge... It's in the dressing room afterwards, but one of our listeners says, hey, by the way, I played beer league in the 80s, always had beer on the bench, mm. and games without <laughs> fights were rare. And then I said, beer on the bench, I guess we did used to smoke and drink on the curling ice once upon a time. There were actual ashtrays in the little benches in between the sheets of ice in the curling rinks back in the day. So, And you could still get drinks at some clubs delivered to the curling ice. Like Still down on the, on the ice. ice. I, I want to say at one Winnipeg club, it was okay. It was two years ago, so that may have changed. But there's a speaker you can push the button and order your drink. Nice. That sounds fun. I've never. I've, I've never curling, done you're curling. not exactly any body contact that's going to get you going no, to bug somebody. But you don't want to fall on that ice. No, and it is competitive. But yeah, and I have a question. I know you have more text to read, but I had said beer league or rec hockey might be the same, and maybe they're not. I know in rec hockey there's still refs for adults. Perhaps in some of these beer leagues, it might be more like the Sunday night hockey that I know of uh, for our women's team, which is no refs. You just go out there and you're put on pennies and you're just playing against each other. So I don't know if there is actually a difference between. Rack League, which still has fees, a lot of fees, and perhaps insurance associated with it, and just a bunch of guys or girls going out. Well, I guess there's a difference between pickup and actually playing in a league. If you play in a league, you I still suspect, have to rent the ice, and I would yeah, suspect, I suspect there's rules and liabilities to that. You want referees involved. Uh, one of our listeners saying most of the Beer league hockey is fun with friends. Rec hockey is a bunch of guys. Most of them you never met playing hockey. And yes, beer league, you have a beer before and after the game. Neil, I think they're trying to sell you on it. Oh, yeah? Yeah, me too, perhaps. I, 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 haven't, I haven't put on a pair of skates, uh, ice skates at least, since I was a kid, probably 11, 12 years old. The last time I put on skates, they were rollerblades, and that was in my early 20s. So uh, I would be... Dreadful. And Neil texted earlier saying in our league, beer league, you drop the gloves, you're done forever, find a new league. And he adds, it's no hit, no slap shots, great league, Oak Bank, old timer, hockey association. Hmm. Neil, thank you very much for that. And Tim asking the question, do women drink beer after a rec league game? Just curious. And I answered it, yeah, some of them do, and sometimes you do. And I think for the most part, everyone tries to do that, that, that one drink rule, but... I can't speak for everyone, but I, women are no different than men. It's still fun, and you're quenching your thirst after or going out for pizza or wings or what have you. I really, um, I'd like anyone to tell me out there who's in any of these leagues, because I'm now looking, they talked about in that story at 745 about how Hockey Canada is not only trying to change the sport for the younger generation so you have fewer contacts and hits and, and fewer concussions, the adult Rec Hockey League in under the Hockey Canada website is actually called the Adult Safe Hockey League, and it comes with insurance and all the rest. So is that what we're talking about that most men and women and co-ed teams are playing in? And and therefore, what are the rules when it comes to hitting someone or fighting with someone? That might be that texter might have a no hitting, no fight rule because the team has decided when we get out there, if you do that, we don't want that. But is there a a league rule for these adult teams, right? Yeah, a lot of those adult leagues will definitely have that rule, but it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Because it's not like having a fist fight at work where it's something that you would probably have never seen in your life. 
hockey and fist fights, unfortunately, go hand in hand for a lot of people. So the idea of dropping the gloves for people that have played hockey for a long time, whether it's against the rules or not, against league rules or not, it still happens in that heat of the moment. People do decide Mm -hmm. to take matters into their own hands, quite literally. Are there other sports like this? We talked about the fact that hockey has more of that culture in terms of the old school players, and they're trying to change a bit of that. We have a texter just saying now, (laughs) slow pitch is worse for idiots. That's interesting. So I'd like, you know, for sure, I'm sure there are beers and drinks consumed on a slow pitch. So what's the bigger issue then? Is it the sport or is it the alcohol Alcohol. and alcohol, testosterone, uh, you know, Anger don't really go together. Elevated sense of who you are, who you want to be. Competition. Uh, think of the arguments you've had over Monopoly when there's wine and or beer involved. It can get pretty heated. Yeah. You didn't own that Baltic Avenue. I'm not giving you six bucks. <laughs> I saw you take that five hundred from the bank. Hey, banker. I know when I played slow pitch, I played in the Great West Life intramural league and i played on a team called the di joes the disability insurance joes and uh we were like the the loud rowdy fun raucous team and we were all drinking during the games uh but there are there were other teams in the league that were far more serious they were very competitive we weren't one of those we were like the c division uh that was the the fun division the c division champs But Greg Mackling, right now we have an old friend in studio with us from the Winnipeg Dress Collective. There's something happening in March, and she's here to tell us about it. Well, you know, upcycling is probably one of the greatest things you can do with anything right now. Think about your wedding dress, McNabb. Do you still have it? My mom paid, I think, probably $200 to have it dry cleaned and put in a special box that is somewhere in my storage room. (laughs) Just turning into must? I don't know. Every once in a while, I think about putting it on just to check the old, oh yeah, you can't fit that anymore. But yeah, it was a nice gesture. But what what am I doing with it? Well, I think that's a great question. I know my sister-in-law, she's not listening right now, visits her dress every time she goes to my mother and father-in-law. She visits it because that's where it hangs. I think it would be great for it to have a second life. And uh, Alex is here from F Apparel along with our longtime friend, Hannah Pratt. She's the founder of the Winnipeg Dress Collection. And uh, Hannah, welcome back. Tell us what you're doing yet again. Uh, So we are really excited to be upcycling yet again, as you were talking about, finding more brides who need dresses and finding more brides who are donating new and used dresses. So on March 22nd, we're having our second annual fitting event um, at the Wellness Collective um, down in the exchange. We're trying to recruit for brides right now to put dresses in their hands, actually. We have a plethora of gorgeous gowns stored at Best Care Dry Cleaners, which is uh, our partner for this project. And we have a new part of the project that that Alex is here to talk about, which we're really excited about as well. Alex, Ethan, tell us about this. Hey, thanks so much. Uh, You know, we're really excited to be involved with what Hannah's started. It's uh, a great opportunity to give back here in the community and help out some deserving individuals. And uh, when we got wind of what she was doing, uh, uh, we thought we'd uh, paint the other side of the brush where there may be some deserving gentlemen out there that uh, could be in need of a uh, a suit for their big day. And uh, we wanted to partner with Hannah and uh, it kind of goes hand in hand with the fact that we'd be helping out brides and grooms. 
So uh, this will be our first year. With the men, the women might keep their dress. I'm curious if the men keep their wedding suit the same way a, a, a female might, because I think they go on to wear it a bit more. It becomes part of their work, potentially. But what what are you finding when you talk to men about what they did with their wedding suit or if they just have a bunch of suits that are like, this could be good for the big day? You know, that's a great comment. And uh, to your point, you you're, are a bit more correct. The average guy buys a suit with the expectation that he will be wearing it afterwards for future events. But sometimes guys do buy very bold outfits for their wedding, whether it be a, a tuxedo or a very bold color that may not be standard day-to-day wear. But uh, to your point still, they may want to have an opportunity to give it back to somebody. But uh, for the most part, we also do a lot of wedding shows and fashion shows. So we do have suits also uh, available to give back to others uh, if they don't have a ton of donations. It's about the other part of the equation we don't think of, right? Totally. Because we often look at the woman all the time Mm -hmm. with the the dress, but the men need to look sharp too. Exactly. Now, Hannah, when you talk about deserving people, what do you, what do you define as deserving? Yeah, it, that's an interesting question because I think a lot of people don't think of themselves as deserving, and I'm really trying to uh, change that narrative. If we we're accepting nominations for other people as well, so even if somebody doesn't necessarily think of themselves as being a deserving person, if you have a friend that you're thinking about who's maybe gone through something, we've had a lot of brides who have lost parents, who have lost their moms, and dress shopping is just not an experience that's exciting to them at this moment in their life. So having a having a kind of a community of people come together saying, we want to make this easier. We want to make this beautiful for you. We want to help you feel amazing for your wedding day at zero cost. That's really that's really the key. So anybody who might also have a financial um, barrier to accessing a wedding dress, wedding dresses are expensive. Mine, the one I gave away that started this project was $1,300 and that was on sale. Mm-hmm. That was a sample sale. Mm-hmm. Mine was in shekels. I bought it in Israel and I don't think I've ever done the conversion <laughs> because I just didn't want to know. I was like, I'm going to leave it in another foreign dollar because they, it's crazy what can be spent and people can't afford that. Exactly. And it's and it's really for one day. And so we might, you know, you were mentioning your your sister-in-law, I think, who visits her dress, but she's not putting it on wearing it out in the, in the world. So we have these dresses that are for one day that cost upwards of $3,000. And we have those gowns in the wedding dress collective. Wow. We have Vera Wang gowns. We have gowns from premier bridal salons. Um, all of all of these dresses are trying to find a second life for somebody who who is, could be defined deserving in many different ways. Well, so what you're really talking about here is creating a cultural shift to a certain extent because really the tradition was to hold on to your dress for whatever reason, tuck it away in a trunk or what have you. Pass it on to your daughter, I How, think, used to be the thing. Uh, but. Yeah, well, yeah, there's a whole, there are plenty of factors involved in that. But how are you managing to convince women who have worn these dresses to do the non-traditional thing and to pass them on to someone else? Well, I think society is, is moving towards trying to be more sustainable generally. We're talking about moving away from fast fashion. Alex was just talking about suits having more than one wear and having like a longer life. So a lot of brides do give me their dresses in these boxed up like keepsake things that that, that's, that have been dry cleaned and, and are just supposed to be preserved and never opened again, which is so wasteful really and so if I have these brides who've maybe taken a year or two to sort of get over it and to realize that the photos that they have from the day are really the mementos really the keepsakes and then understanding and maybe seeing the wedding dress uh, the, the WPG dress collective video seeing how beautiful it can be to pass it forward pay it forward and see the the happiness and the joy that it brings somebody else. So you guys are both going to be at the wonderful wedding show this weekend. Alex, where can we find your booth? You betcha. We'll be uh, managing the Groom's Lounge, and we'll actually have Hannah there as well, uh, supporting the Winnipeg Dress Collective in the booth. So uh, we'll be all around the show with both Hannah and I, and we look forward to seeing everybody there. 
Groom's Lounge, can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know what? The Groom's Lounge is a great spot for guys that maybe have uh, gotten a little tired of walking around <laughs> the wedding show and they need a little breather. So we're going to have uh, the football games on. We're going to have uh, pinball machines. We'll have some PlayStation in there. So if guys want to take a, a breather, then come drop off at the uh, the Groom's Lounge. This Brilliant. whole conversation makes me angry. <laughs> Why is that? I don't know. I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> I get it. I get it. But they're off playing PlayStation and somewhere in that building, this woman's sweating over like the napkins and trying to reduce costs. Don't have to. Don't have to. Don't have napkins? I suppose that's fine. White works perfectly fine. What if you're having ribs? You need the napkins. No problem. Just get more white napkins. It's all good. You don't, maybe don't have ribs? That sounds messy. Uh, so, Anna, if someone listening right now wants to donate a dress, how do they do that? Uh, great question. So, we would love anybody looking to donate or to apply, looking for information on both of those things go to the WPG WPGdresscollective.com so just the, that little acronym at the front we have information on how to apply for a suit how to apply for a dress what criteria we're looking for for dresses because we're realistically looking for dresses that we can reuse as beautiful as those 1980s you know poofy shoulder dresses are we really want to make sure that we can use it so please review the criteria send us an email with a photo of it we're looking for dresses in the range of 16 uh, size 16 to 22 that's our greatest need right now but we would love to take any dress and find a deserving bride for it. Hannah Pratt with the Winnipeg Dress Collective and Alex Ethans, founder of F Apparel, joining us live on 680 CJOB. You can find them at the wonderful wedding show in the Groom's Lounge. Hannah and Alex, thanks for coming by. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Greg, next Friday here on 680 CJOB, a very important day, the HSC Hope to Life Radiothon. Yeah, and a day, it's a day where we celebrate what's going on at HSC, not only research, but also healthcare that's happening on campus at Manitoba's largest hospital, the flagship hospital in our province. And let's be honest, um, not all of the great work is being done just by doctors and practitioners. Sometimes it's the love of a sibling, a daughter, a brother, a father, a mother. And we have such a heartwarming uh, story to share with you today. We have two siblings, who one who saved the other's life with an absolute act of utter kindness. Tasha Prohitko and Nick Prohitko are with us this morning. And I want to thank you both for being here this morning. How are you today? We're feeling great. Thanks. Yeah, you look great. <laughs> How long ago did all this go down? Uh, it started May 8th was the first day I went to the hospital, and July 5th was when I was discharged. So tell us how, how you, you found out that uh, you were going to be, be in this situation. Uh, it was early last April. I started to notice a few symptoms. Among other things, I was uh, just feeling exhausted all the time and ended up going in to get checked for blood work and... Turns out my blood cell counts were seriously low, and that ended up leading me to end up at HSC later that day. And I had a bone marrow biopsy to just determine the problem, and it ended up coming out not uh, not too great, which ended up, I found out I had a serious blood disorder, and that kept me in uh, for the next two months. But then the only course of action there is to have a bone marrow transplant, which the next step was to look for a donor, and that's where uh, my sister ultimately came in and... Uh, we're lucky enough that she was uh, she was a match for my my blood type and bone marrow, so that was uh, a pretty uh, pretty big miracle. You're Tasha, still twenty one, Dick. I am, yeah. 
And Tasha, was there any reluctance on your part when you found out that you were a match to, to do the transplant? Not at all. So it was more a sense of relief. I remember getting this call um, from the donor coordinator, Judy, at like eight in the morning or something. So it kind of woke me up. I wasn't really expecting it that day. Um, and we had done some, some blood work on myself and my sister to see who would be um, the best match or if there was a match. And I got this call and I was so happy. I had kind of started to prepare myself a little bit if that had been the case that I was going to be going into surgery. Um, but yeah, it was amazing. And the feeling of getting to make those phone calls to my family and my brother saying that um, I was a perfect match for him, basically. Um, and the next steps were to just uh, go and do some more blood work, make sure everything was healthy. And then um, within, I think it was a couple of weeks after finding out that I was a match, um, I was in surgery. No, I, was way, ho- I just I forgot to say hello to our friends on Facebook Live at 680 CJOB. We have someone else in studio with us, Greg. Who's sitting to your left? Jonathan Lyon is president and CEO of the Health Sciences Center Foundation. And Jonathan, I was hoping Nick was going to bail me out so I didn't have to say adiopathic aplastic anemia, which is what you were dealing with, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nick. And it's something that a lot of people probably have n- never heard of. Can I mean, you- my, myself included in that group of people. So how shocking was it to, to not only realize that, that you were unwell, but something that you'd never heard of? Because sometimes if you've heard of it, you can at least wrap your head around the concept mm-hmm. somewhat. I think in my case, it was almost a good thing that I hadn't heard of it because I wasn't able to fully understand how serious it was because I had no idea what the what the causes or what the symptoms even were of it. But uh, the closest thing I can compare it to is similar to types of leukemia or lymphoma, just the, the symptoms and the causes that it gives to your blood, your bone marrow and your stem cells. But uh, no, it was uh, just a, a crazy experience. And I thankfully didn't worry too much throughout the entire thing, just because I think I was so lucky to have a found an item match for a donor so soon that I was pretty stress-free about it. And Thankfully, as serious as the illness is, the symptoms don't necessarily reflect that. So you don't feel physically ill as much. You just kind of feel exhausted is about it. How are you now? Sorry, Greg. Just how are, <laughs> how are you feeling now? I feel great now. I'm back, uh, not back in school yet, but I'm going back in the spring and then going back to work soon. But I'm back. I was out skating at the outdoor rink a few weeks ago. I'm back in the gym four or five times a week now, which is just kind of all I could hope for because I was sitting in the hospital in bed for two months just going stir crazy it was a little uh a little tough just considering i've always i've always been active my entire life so that was a a bit of a culture shock for me what a gift tasha Mm -hmm. Uh, jonathan you hear these stories you get to hear them all the time how heartwarming is it when when you see the really this is the fruition of the work that goes on uh, every day all around you well it's it's an incredible story and um you know we're and again, what better barometer for uh, being healthy than being able to skate outdoors in January in Winnipeg? And uh, so that's a that's you know a nice. Uh, it's, it's just great to see Nick looking so well. Nick uh, Nick's the same age as my son, so there for the grace of God, you know, go any of us. And it's just another point. You never know health. We all take health for granted, and sometimes, unfortunately, bad things happen. But when when it does. You know, that's why it's important to support places like the Health Sciences Centre, the backbone of the healthcare in in our province. And we're going to tell stories like uh, Nick and Tasha's next uh, Friday on our Radiothon, and we're going to have more inspirational stories. And it is. It's inspirational, and it motivates me and our team at the Foundation and our volunteer board every day to continue to raise funds. Um, 
for projects. You know, our foundation uh, uh, has supported GD6, the ward he spent over eight weeks on um, in the past, and there's there's no end of need in healthcare. Uh, in Manitoba and uh, foundation and events like Radiothon where we ask the community to continue to step up and support clinical research and uh, projects that benefit all of us. And this is just another example of uh, of uh, how donating and supporting healthcare care uh, really impacts us all. Tasha, how did you feel after the bone marrow transplant? Like, did, did you suffer any sort of, like, were you fatigued, for example? I was. So um, from my understanding, what I was explained by the staff is that it takes about 21 days, like three weeks or so to fully replenish your bone marrow stores that were removed. So I had a 1.2 liter um, bone, uh, 1.2 liters of bone marrow removed for the um, donation. Um, and for the first, I would say, week or so, I was quite tired. Like I was mostly um, in bed and kind of getting up every once in a while to move around. Um, but where they do the surgeries in like lower back kind of hip bone area. So it was difficult to lie down too, too much there. Um, and just sort of, um, like a pain. Um, so nothing, nothing too, too bad. Um, but within uh, like a week I was back to work, um, a little bit of pain, like on some some meds. Yeah. That is just incredible. Holy it wasn't. Smoke. It wasn't bad, and I'm thankfully um, I'm younger, so it, I was able to bounce back a little bit quicker. But yeah, so. <laughs> well, 680 CJOB is proud to support the Health Sciences Center Foundation Hope to Life Radiothon presented by Merrick Holmes next Friday, January 24th, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can get more information, and you can make a donation at hopetolife.ca. So once again, in studio with us, we have. Tasha Prohitko, Nick Prohitko, and Jonathan Lyon from the HSC Foundation. Thank you all for coming in to see us today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to the Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global. And on Instagram, at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.